Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, June 27th. It's turning into one of those days, one of those Mondays. Um, the end of the world may just be the beginning. When you look at the uh, newspaper headlines today, uh, things are pretty bleak. Uh, let me just find some of these headlines. Um, when you look at the FT, which tends to be a reasonably optimistic newspaper, oil prices are going up. Um, we're on the verge of war, apparently, in Ukraine, NATO increasing forces. Of course, there's all the outrage in America over abortion. America seems to be on the verge of civil war. Uh, and then when you drill down, things aren't much better. Russians attacking Ukrainian shopping malls, uh, various other miserable kind of end-of-the-world style news. The same is true in the Wall Street Journal uh, and the New York Times, which has always been a kind of end-of-the-world sort of newspaper, of course, concurs that certainly conforms with their vision of the world. So it looks as if we're on the verge of the end of the world. And my guest today, I think, would concur. I'm not sure if he's a pessimist, but he has a, a rather ominous new book out. The end of the world is just the beginning, mapping the collapse of globalization. He's a very distinguished uh, geostrategic thinker, Peter uh, Zihan, and he's joining us from Colorado. Peter, is that why you're in Colorado? Have you got a big bunker there? <laughs> I am above the blast zone if Denver gets hit, but I'm actually an optimist. I just don't play one on TV. So when do you play one? <laughs> uh, it depends on who the client is. Sometimes I've got good news. Usually I do have good news. Of late, well, this is, there's no good news here, Peter. Uh, Peter, I've been trawling through the book. I mean, you, you note that the 2019 was the last great year for the world economy. You suggest in the beginning of the book that we've lived through the best period perhaps in history. So where's the good news? The good news is there is something on the other side of this. Globalization was never more than a moment in time. It was a combination of the perfect security environment that the Americans created to fight the Cold War, a view towards open markets that had never existed before, and a wonderful demographic half century where first we had a lot of young consumers and then ultimately a lot of investors. But we always knew that we were going to feed through into something else. We've always known that, known that the, the baby busts that started in the 50s and the 60s were always going to play forward into this moment where we're not simply running out of children, but running out of working age adults. And if you play that against the end of the American commitment to the global order, the whole concept of free trade, while it was great while it lasted, is really over. And whether it's because of the Americans turning insular or the Europeans dying out or China vanishing from the earth, this system we've become used to was always going to go away. I and mean, we were always going to get to whatever's next. Unfortunately, whatever's next is a bit of a rough ride. We will emerge on the other side of this with a newer, more stable manufacturing, agriculture, and energy system. But getting from here to there, yeah, that's the devil is in the details. I'm sure you tell all the girls that, Peter, about being a rough rider. Um, you, you, um, 
I, I, looking through the book, I'm trying to find a kind of uh, theoretical anchor. Are you a demography guy? You know, we've had lots of shows in which some authors argue that demography is destiny. Others argue that it isn't. Uh, Jennifer Skuba, for example, I'm sure you know her work. She has a new book out. She argues that demography isn't destiny. What is ultimately the the driver of this? Is, is there um, is there a principle driving the 2020s, the change we're about to encounter, Peter? Is it demography? Well, I wouldn't call demography density destiny, but I would call it dense. I can't speak all of a sudden. Destiny adjacent. Uh, there's only so much you can do if you don't have any workers. And what we've seen over the course of the last 50 years is cultures, with the United States included, but Europe and Asia more dramatically, have gone through this weird period where birth rates dropped, but mortality dropped with it. So you had populations that were not just steadily getting older, they were getting bigger even as they were having fewer children. China's probably the best case example there. Almost all of the population gains they've experienced in the last 50 years aren't from more babies. It's from just people living twice as long. And you can double your population by doing that. But eventually you get to a point of no return. The Chinese hit that in the 1990s, certainly by the 2000s. And eventually you get to a point where those working age populations are just aren't enough and they can't even theoretically repopulate the ethnicity. And that's where we've been with the, the Chinese for some time. And so the 2020s was always going to be this decade where a lot of these trends came to a head. And decades of demographic decisions and decisions on population policy and personal lives were always going to reach this point where we were going to run out of consumers and workers at more or less the same time. Now, different countries started this process at different times. They've accelerated down this road at different rates. They're getting to different places. They're coping with it differently. Demographics is maybe the most important factor, but it's not the only one. And some countries like Japan have found a way to grow old relatively gracefully. The Russians, for all their faults, have found a way to pay for everything, even when their population is in collapse. But for every country that's kind of in the good category, there are countries, a thousand of them almost, in the negative category. So the Italy's, the Germany's, the Korea's of the world, these are countries that have aged into obsolescence and simply don't have a path forward. Uh, so you are, a uh, you are a demography guy, although it may not be the core truth. You're definitely a maps guy, Peter. When you go to your website, definitely. you've got some amazing maps. I'm sure when you, you give your speeches around the world, you dazzle your audience with your maps. Um, are you a geography guy? We've done lots of shows about, again, why geography is destiny. The Stanford historian, for example, Ian Morris, was on the show recently arguing that geography explains everything from Brexit to the Cuban crisis, to the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. We also had a very distinguished geographer, Tim Marshall, on the show, um, talking about his new book, The Power of Geography. How, how essential is geography in terms of understanding the 2020s? And of course, geography doesn't really change. So how, how do the consistencies of geography uh, trigger change itself, since geography is always the same? Geography and demography are the two things that inform everything that I do. And you're absolutely right, geography doesn't change. Now, our interactions with geography can evolve when we have a new technological suite that comes along. So probably the best example is Britain. Britain was an island. 
And so when the uh, deep water revolution happened in the 1500s, they were the natural beneficiary and they did go on to rule most of the world. And they used the income from that to generate the industrial revolution, which at first was great because they were the only ones with the technologies. But just like deep water navigation technologies migrated from Portugal and Spain to Britain, a place that could use them better. The same thing happened with the industrial technologies. And that explains in large part why Germany had never succeeded as a unified power before, but all of a sudden could. And then all of a sudden tried to swallow Europe. But it wasn't done migrating there. It migrated to another geography that could make better use of both deep water and industrial techs, and that's the United States. And so this generation, multi-generational pattern through history of technology favoring one geography and then kind of turning its back and favoring a different one. This is in many ways the story of the human condition. And what has changed in the last century is industrialization changed the way that we live. And so we moved off of the farms and into the towns. And when you do that, you have fewer kids. So that introduces demography into the mix as well. And so we're seeing our first real demographic turning. At the same time, we're seeing the industrial maturing process reaching a point where industrial technologies are now only possible under a globalized system where you can access all the raw materials. So we get to see two unprecedented trends break more or less at the same time this decade. We're going to get to China. China is an important piece of your narrative and, and, and the United States is as well. Of course, these kind of books are always full of predictions about U.S. versus China, uh, about the environment. But the one thing that really surprised me and intrigued me, the one of the predictions you make in the book is sort of a, a geography demographic uh, point that when I read it, I thought, oh, my God, that's absurd. But then the more I think about it, the the more sense it makes. Um, we've done lots of cases about immigration from uh, Central America, Mexico to the United States. They've gone recently with journalist Levi Volk on the moral case for demilitarizing the southern border. He never makes an economic case. It's always assumed that we Americans, quote unquote, don't want Latin Americans or Central Americans because they don't add value to the U.S. economy. Um, we've also did a, a show recently on the paradoxical history of Latinos in America, a very distinguished um, American Latino uh, journalist, Juan Gonzalez, Harvest of Empire. You argue, or, or correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, you argue in the book that one of the things that's going to change is that that relationship in the 2020s is going to be turned on its head, that Mexico is the new China, which is a very intriguing idea. And as I said, when I first read, I thought, oh, that's kind of absurd. But actually, the more I think about it, the more sense it makes, because someone's got to be the new China, don't they? Well, it'd be useful to have something that would complement our manufacturing base. And Mexico is the best option by far, not just because of proximity. Uh, the the geographic structure of Mexico is a lot different from the United States because, to be perfectly blunt, in most of the United States, it's rains. So if you have rains, you have farms. You have farms, you have small towns. You have small towns, you have large towns. If you have large towns, you have cities with suburbs. You get this gradient of population. And then the population centers, those dense urban cores, draw upon the entire hinterland. You don't have that in northern Mexico. Northern Mexico is highland desert. So you have some isolated cities that basically rule themselves. Uh, that are not heavily connected into the rest of Mexico. And from an American point of view, 
if you're looking for a manufacturing partner, this is perfect because you get a family or a series of families who rule each city and you just go down there, you cut a few handshake deals, you leave with a hangover, maybe a godchild and you're in business. Now you can't do that forever. Northern China, I'm sorry, Northern Mexico is only 35 million people versus over a billion in China. So it's not like everyone can go to Mexico. But you have a younger population demographic that is more sustainable than anything in the advanced world and anything in the advanced developing world. It's a healthier demography than, say, Brazil or India. And you've got a population that is already relatively educated, even by American standards. So you can look, if you're willing to like step back from the ethnic question, and you can look at comparative economies around the world right now, and the Mexicans have a larger workforce that is better trained, that is working with higher quality industrial plant and does more value add than all of Central Europe combined. This is exactly what you want in a partner. Pete, we did a show, just thinking aloud, we did a show recently on synthetic opioids and how they are being produced now more and more in Mexico rather than in China. Is the rise of Mexico, does, might it go along with more anarchy, more crises of democracy, more giving up of optimism about um, equitable politics? Those are all things to be concerned about. One of the reasons why the United States, compared to a lot of the developing world, has a stronger democratic tradition isn't simply because of age. It's because of that same basic fact it rains. And if you've got a community that's based in agriculture and then migrates into small towns and from there to larger towns, you've got multiple tiers of power, none of which can veto or prevent actions from the others. And it forces us to get along to a certain degree. Now, clearly that has not been on display in the last few years, but the whole concept of federalism is that not everyone can dominate everyone else. Mexico is a little bit more problematic. If you're in a place it's desert, you have a stunted political system, just like you have a concentrated economic one. If you're in Southern Mexico in the tropics, same thing for slightly different reasons. The only part of Mexico that kind of fits the American idea of what a country should look like is the center. Now that is home to half the Mexican population and the political capital, but it's elevated almost a vertical mile above the seabed, I'm sorry, above sea level. And that means physical infrastructure is difficult. So whereas in the United States, the land has been flat, the rivers are navigable, Mexico has none of that. It doesn't take a lot of capital for the United States to be successful. And there's not a lot that the government has to do to compensate for the geography because the geography is very favorable. But in Mexico, you have all these uplands, you have all these dry territories. And if you don't have a rail line, you can't make anything else work. And it's hard to build a rail line up a vertical mile. So Mexico has always been capital poor, which means that the capital is concentrated into relatively few hands and it makes democracy a lot more difficult. That's probably the primary reason why Mexico didn't even really give democracy a an honest shake until about 25 years ago. They're new. The end of the world is just the beginning, mapping the collapse of globalization. I want to get to that collapse um, in a minute, Peter. Uh, this is your new book. Many of you people will be familiar with previous books. The Accidental Superpower, The Next Generation of American Preeminence and the Coming Global Disorder was one of your previous books. The Absent Superpower, The Shell Revolution and a World Without America. You're talking to me from 
Colorado, which at this point at least is part of the United States. Um, what about America in the 2020s? I know you believe that America will become, if not more isolationist, certainly more exceptionalist. We've done lots of shows with DC foreign affairs experts like Charles Kupchan, who whose book Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World, is critical of isolationism. But you suggest in the 20s that America, if not becoming an isolationist power, will certainly become more of one. Well, let me get my personal politics out of the way. I forecast what I see, not what I would like. And I think the United States has a wonderful opportunity right now to show the world who it really is and lead in a constructive manner and help remake the human condition in a positive way. I don't think that's going to happen. So uh, the United States, for economic and political reasons, is taking a break. Economically, we have indirectly or directly subsidized globalization for 75 years. We did that in order to get allies to fight the Cold War, and we're done. And politically, internally, the American political system every generation or two goes through a reshuffling when the factions that make up the two parties move around. Some fall from power, some become swing voters, some jump ship. This is the seventh time the United States has done this, and we have never gotten through it in less than a decade. And so we're in about year five, six right now. To think that we're going to have this all shaken out by the end of the Biden administration, I think is a little over optimistic. And as long as that is happening, it's difficult for the United States to even have a conversation with itself about what it wants out of the world. We know what we don't like. We don't like the idea of a regional superpower starting to threaten us. That's one of the reasons we're so anti-Chinese at the moment. We don't like the idea of a problem that can't be solved with security issues. We like to use our military to solve our problems. Now. There's a number of reasons why that works. There's a number of reasons why it doesn't work, but it does shape the American response and how the United States is perceived in the world. So with the possible exception of the Ukraine war, giving a little bit of fresh momentum to the Western world, we have seen the United States bit by bit withdraw from everything now for four and a half straight presidents. Uh, this is not an aberration. This, this is a pattern. The only question is whether or not we get some sort of lasting agreement with the European allies in the aftermath of the Ukraine war, whatever that looks like. And I would argue that it's far too soon to be able to predict that at the moment. Well, normally, Peter, any predictions of U.S. decline or withdrawal go with the rise of China. We've done lots of shows on whether Russia or China is our are the United States' great, greatest threat. Aaron Freeberg, for example, the author of A Contest for Supremacy, who sees the Chinese as Leninists, believe it is our biggest threat. Uh, globalists like C. Fred Bergstrom, the author of The United States versus China, doesn't believe that China is our greatest threat, that we share a common interest and commitment to globalization. They both believe, though, that China is a growing global power. You argue in the book, and this is one of the more surprising pieces of the book, that China isn't, that, um, that the future is not Chinese. Why, Peter? Everything about Chinese success since World War II has been because of an outside force. The Chinese lost World War II to the Japanese. 
uh, every major city fell, the entirety of the northern China plain fell. It was the United States removing the Japanese from the game that allowed China to be independent again. Uh, when Nixon went to visit Mao to turn the Chinese against the Soviets, the price was entrance into the American-led globalized economic order. So the Chinese signed up basically to be on the American side versus the Soviets, and that did very well for them with the tech transfer that came of it, and especially the market access, both in terms of being able to get the raw commodities in and then getting the manufactured goods out. That is the Chinese economic success story. But there's another side to that. When every country globalized and industrialized and urbanized, because the three go together, they moved off the farm and into those condos, and China did it faster than anyone else. And we see that 40 years of breakneck urbanization as the normal for China. The idea that this is replicable forever, that this is just how China is, this growth rate is their normal, and it's not. That was 200 years of industrialization and urbanization crammed into a 40 year period. That is the China story. That is the China growth. And you can only urbanize once and they've already done it now. So the degree to which the Chinese have tinkered with their statistics is, you know, the stuff of legend. But we all know in the last three years that they've gone into outright fabrication to generate any growth whatsoever. Uh, we know that they're struggling with COVID because their COVID vaccine really doesn't work. and because the Chinese were successful at keeping COVID out of the general population until recently, no one in the population has natural immunity either. So if they were to open up, you'd be looking at mass deaths in a very short period of time. The solution, the only health policy that makes any sense in that environment is lockdowns. And in lockdowns, you can't participate in manufacturing supply chains. And even if you could, the demographic bomb is now so far advanced that there are more Chinese in their 50s than their 40s than their 30s than their 20s than their teens. And in that sort of environment, we're already seeing consumption collapse. We saw new car sales collapsing back in 2018, two years before COVID shut everything down, back when everyone was convinced that China was the oncoming superpower and they've never recovered. That's for a rapidly advancing, developing economy, car sales are like the number one or the number two measure that you watch to see how well they're doing, because that is how people think of their future, a big purchase going towards some sort of asset. They're not doing it at the same time, they're not having kids. So the two big signals of national success are actually negative in China and have been for some time. And we're now getting bits and pieces out of the Chinese Census Bureau indicating that they probably overcounted their population by in excess of 100 million people, all who would have been born since one child was adopted, the majority of whom are women. So we're not looking at an inevitable rise here. We're looking at an inevitable collapse. And with some of the decisions that are now being made in Beijing, it's suggesting to me that this is going to happen sooner rather than later. So we have a, an America that withdraws, perhaps even isolationist, a China that's already shot its bolt. You mentioned Ukraine. Um, we did a show last year about Ukraine being the first global war about globalization itself. In the 20s, are you suggesting that in this post-globalization age, no one's going to dominate? It's a, it's a kind of Hobbesian war of all against all, chaos? 
Well, even if the United States decided to not build another weapon system, it still has 11 supercarriers. And one supercarrier is enough to take out the Air Force of all but like three countries in the world. So I'm not worried about the United States losing its punch. Uh, and there's a lot of things that are past the drawing board that are going to be deployed this decade. So the United States will retain the ability to reach out and touch someone uh, at a whim whenever it wants to. That doesn't mean that the United States is going to be using its military power to patrol the global system, especially not the global oceans, to ensure commerce, because we don't have that kind of navy anymore. For that, you need destroyers, hundreds of them. We only have 70, and half of them are dedicated to protecting the carriers. So even if we wanted to, we can't. So I expect we will see a regional, a regional breakdown, a series of regional major powers that rise up, whether out of opportunity or desperation, to dominate their own neighborhoods. Uh, the United States, obviously, is going to be the big man in the Western Hemisphere writ large, but you should watch out for Argentina, because in a world that is in the dark and doesn't have enough food, Argentina has more than enough stuff to fill bellies and keep the lights on in a number of countries. That'll give it power that it's never had before. Japan's a country that's figured out how to manage its demographic decline and They've already signed on for a long-term partnership with the United States. So that's already the world's two most powerful navies that for the most part are operating hand in glove. I can see Turkey dominating parts of the Southeastern Europe as well as the Caucasus and the Middle East. I can see France taking a big chunk of Western Europe and North Africa into kind of a neo-imperial system. Everyone's gonna trade on its own strengths. One of the key things to remember about globalization is it allowed everyone to play. You didn't have to have a military. You didn't have to have oil. You didn't have to have food. You could produce and export whatever you wanted and import everything else. So what becomes of the, the great success stories of globalization? Singapore, for example. Singapore is an interesting one. I can see Southeast Asia writ large doing pretty well. And Singapore serves as not just an entrepot, but an ultra high-end financing and manufacturing center. And if you break down the Chinese system, a lot of that manufacturing is just going to die. But not all of it. Some of it's going to relocate. And Southeast Asia is perfect. You've got a technocratic Singapore. You've got a middle... Um, Tier, you've got middle tier countries like Malaysia and Thailand. You've got lower wage issues like Myanmar and Vietnam and Indonesia. It's kind of its own mini globalized system with Singapore at the very top. I can see that working very well for them. They have to figure out a couple of security issues and they'll probably reach out to the Japanese for that, but I can see that working pretty well. Okay, interesting. I'm still slightly speechless with your prediction that the Argentinian Navy will dominate the world. Oh, no, 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 that is not what I meant to say. I'm teasing you, Peter. <laughs> I, know you, I know you didn't say that, but you, you're one of the first futurists to predict that Argentina will play an important role in the world. Um, and you talked about maritime lanes and the maritime economy being important. You're not the first person to be suggesting this. I had a couple of uh, left-wing historians Liam Cambling and Alejandro Colas on the show talking about the relationship between capitalism and the sea. You predict in the 20s that maritime economics will suddenly become something that we read and hear and talk a lot about, just as we're talking now about you know, supply chains where no one even knew what those were five years ago. Why, are, why, why, why is maritime capitalism, maritime economics, why is that the future too? There, there's two sides to maritime shipping and supply chains. The first is on the front end. 
if you don't have the iron ore, you cannot have the steel, which means you cannot have the girders and you cannot have the cars. Uh, same for bauxite, same for lithium, same for rare earths. You have to have the base materials or you can't play. On the back end, it's all about the value added. First, the intermediate products and ultimately the finished products. And if we're moving into a world where the United States will not be guaranteeing maritime security, where the United States cannot guarantee maritime security, if it floats, it has value because there's no point in shipping something no one wants. So it's either going to be the raw commodities that allow you to enjoy the industrial age, or it's going to be the finished products which allow you to enjoy the industrial age. All those little things in the middle, those intermediate products, a lot of those are probably going to go away because there won't be sufficient security. And in that sort of environment, if you see a ship ruining its day, will probably make yours. You talked also in the book, or you talk about the history of food or the future of food. We've <coughs> excuse me, we did an interesting show with the historian Scott Reynolds Nelson uh uh on um his new book oceans of gray and how american wheat remade the world this was at the end of the 19th century and many people have made sense of what's happening in the ukraine um in terms of the politics and economics of food why why is food going to be one of the uh headlines one of the driving forces of the 2020 the economics of food when we think of globalization, we primarily think of manufactured goods, or if we're reaching a little bit, maybe energy politics. But food's more important than the two of those put together. It isn't just that globalization has allowed us to put the, push the technological envelope and grow more food in more places. It's that globalization has allowed us to specialize. For some, that means semiconductors. For some, that means refined products. But for most people in the world, it comes down to food. It used to be everyone would grow wheat and then your diet wasn't all that exciting. But globalization enabled us to grow whatever crop on our plot of land made the most sense from an economic point of view rather than a food security issue point of view. So Iowa got into soy and corn and wheat went away. In Florida, it went into citrus. In Germany, it went into a lot of high value added products and the wheat went to the margins. We now only grow wheat in places that only wheat will grow. And in the industrialized age, when you have fertilizers and irrigation, that is way out on the margins. We're talking here Montana, Eastern Kansas, Kazakhstan, places where you couldn't grow really anything in the pre-industrial age, all of a sudden now dominate the wheat markets. Now run that all in reverse. The industrial inputs that allow global agriculture to work don't just magically happen. They are part of supply chains themselves, whether it's fertilizers or pesticides or farm equipment. And if you break down the input streams, break down those industrial input, the industrial inputs that allow modern agriculture to happen at the margins, that is global wheat. So what we're seeing here with the Ukraine war is the early breakdown of not just wheat in the former Soviet world, but wheat in large portions of the world where those various inputs are not local. Now, that's a different picture everywhere. For example, Australia doesn't make a lot of farm equipment, doesn't make a lot of their own fertilizer. In fact, they import all the phosphate and all the potash that they use. And if you break down the global input streams, Australia goes from being one of the largest exporters in the world to perhaps, if things don't fall just right, maybe even a mild net importer. 
And this is for one of the countries that allows the rest of the population of the world to exist. Brazil's in a very similar situation. Peter, the, uh, the end of the world is just the beginning. Uh, obviously, would make people think of the environment, but you're not quite as pessimistic as some environmentalists are. We've done many shows about whether capitalism can help fix climate change. Did one recently with Bob Keefe, for example, the author of Climatenomics. Are you cautiously optimistic that the that, that some sort of alliance of techno new technology and capitalism can begin to address the climate crisis in the 2020s? I'm probably not as dark on that topic as some, uh, but I see it primarily, at least in the midterm, as an agricultural issue. Remember that most of our wheat is grown at the margins and only with industrial inputs. Well, climate change will be felt first and most dramatically at those margins. So the the system that has allowed us to keep 8 billion people alive, that itself is in danger. As to what that means, it's not so much that I'm an optimist or a pessimist, I'm just not convinced that I know what's going on. Predicting what's going on down to the country and especially the zip code level is devilishly hard. Uh, the best example I can give you is 2021 in the summer in the United States when Portland, you know, cool, rainy, grungy Portland became hotter for almost three weeks than Las Vegas has ever been. No one predicted that. No one saw that coming. To think that we have that level of math to be able to predict is difficult. Uh, there are a few bright spots, depends upon who, where you are. As a rule, uh, we're seeing more heating in the poles than in the equator, which suggests that we're going to see stronger currents of wind going from the equator to the poles. That suggests we get a lot of moisture transfer from the equator uh, to the temperate zones, assuming you have a tropical body of water between you and the equator. So if you are in places like the American Midwest, this is great. You're talking about slightly warmer night temperatures, fewer frost nights, and more moisture. That's like the perfect combination for greater crops, and we're seeing that. But if you have a desert between you and the equator, like say Siberia, it's the worst of all things because you're looking at more extreme daytime temperatures, so less moisture, less humidity, and more danger to the crop. Uh, everything is moving, and I feel like we've got a decent bit of a grip on this, but not to the degree that we can really shape policy locally. All we can really do is look at what's vulnerable and see if it's going to become more or less. Uh, and considering that a lot of the places that are vulnerable are also breadbaskets, that's a problem. Peter, I'm talking to you from San Francisco, and our audience here, I think, will be surprised and intrigued with the fact that we've talked about the 2020s, but we haven't talked about crypto. We haven't talked about Web3. We haven't talked about AI. We haven't talked about Silicon Valley. Are they all irrelevant in the, 19, in the 2020s? I don't think it's irrelevant, but something to keep in mind is that as you move into retirement, you change the way you invest and you liquidate all your stocks and your bonds and anything that might go into venture capital. And you just go into really static T-bills and cash. And then you just whittle away at that until you die. Well, the baby boomers are the largest generation we have ever had, largest workforce we've ever had. And they're all retiring uh, right now. In fact, on average, they'll have retired by the end of this year and they will have all retired by the end of the 2020s. That capital is what drives tech development, whether it's hiring all the kids who do the work, hiring the coders, doing the operationalization, building the AI systems, building the assembly lines, keeping them updated, that all takes money. And we're losing the money 
on a global basis. So the pace of technological change we become used to is coming to not to a halt, but certainly is moving back to a mere fraction of what we're used to. Now for the United States, where the demographic is relatively positive, we only have to wait for the millennials to be the dominant investor group, and that will happen some point in the 2040s. And then we'll be back in a richer capital environment and we can pick this up where we left off. But for everyone else, it's different. See, we've got this weird thing in the United States because there's so much elbow room, the boomers had kids. So if you look at a demographic for the United States, it widens to the baby boomers, it narrows to Gen X, it widers, widens out to the millennials, and then narrows again for the Zoomers. For everyone else, it widens for the boomers, shrinks for Gen X, shrinks for the millennials, and shrinks even further for the Zoomers. So for the United States, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and it is not a train. But it's difficult to see tech being a globally significant sector 10 years from now when there's only one country that can play. Peter, are we moving somewhere where we've never been before? Are there historical analogies? The more I listen to you, the more it seems as if the 2020s is going to be a lot more like the 19th century than most of the 20th century. In some ways, we're returning to a multipolar world, a world of disorder, a world not dominated by progress. Are, are there periods of history that people might study to make sense of the future? Uh, yes and no. Let's start with the no, because in many ways this is truly unique. The industrialization, urbanization, globalization pulse changed our demographic structure. It allowed us to interact in ways we hadn't before, all at the same time. And it takes 70 years for you to reap what you sow from a demographic transition. We're now at that end of that process. We now have to go in the other direction and undo it all as these populations get older, move into mass retirement and die off. And then we see what emerges on the other side. We're not gonna be able to find an economic structure that really fits that until it's formed. And then it'll still take us 20 to 30 years. So you're talking past the 2050s before we even get to the point that we can make an honest go of this. That's never happened before. I mean, maybe when these new technologies like industrialization have popped in, the, the chaos of the early adoption, that's probably the closest. And so you can look back to the 1840s to 1920s being the greatest examples. And if you know your history, especially in Europe, that was a rough time. Uh, if you want to talk environmental disruption, that gets a lot darker, a lot faster. We've got two or three good examples that have happened recent enough in history that we can look back and see what happens. Not that we were dealing with the precise set of global uh, environmental changes that we were now, that's, that's not what I'm saying, but just to see that if you do introduce change in the climatic system, the impact that it has on human society. So the most recent one we had uh, was in the 1800s when the world dropped by a few degrees because of volcanic activity. Uh, we had snow in Massachusetts in July. We had um, Mary Shelley pounding out Frankenstein because it was the brightest, sunniest topic in the room. And we had three years basically without summer and faced famine in places like Scotland and the upper parts of the United States and in Japan and Korea. If you want to go back to a little bit darker time, we've had a number of civilizational collapses. Uh, the earliest one that we have decent-ish records for is called the Late Bronze Age Collapse. And then we've had a more recent 
uh, ones here and there. Uh, but any situation where you change the weather for more than a year, you change agriculture. And if you do that, not everybody wins and not everybody walks away at the end of it. And we're going to see some of that in the next 20 years. Peter, for people watching this, you look a little with your beard, you look a little bit like a, an American version of Rasputin. Um, uh, I'm half joking. We had Jennifer Signor, the New Yorker writer, who had a wonderful piece, chilling piece as well, on Steve Bannon as the American Rasputin. In political terms, the more I listen to you, actually, the more it seems as if there's anyone who understands this future, it's Bannon. Uh would you agree? And are there other politicians around who get it, who understand that we're going somewhere we've never been before and they're going to be masters of this universe? We'll see. Uh, when it comes to Baden, he's taken advantage of the fact that the U.S. political system is going through that once every generation or two flux. And one of the things that we are seeing, whether on the right or the left, is everyone is really loud right now because everyone wants their faction to be the litmus test for loyalty for whatever the new political alignments are. So whether it's a Roe v. Wade issue or a populism versus globalism issue, everyone now has the need for volume. And it's going to work for some of them. Will it work for Bannon? I have no idea. I don't think we're far enough in the process for me to have a good grip on that. All I can tell you is that whenever the United States goes through this process, the parties that emerge on the other side are broadly unrecognizable compared to what we have going in. We're not there yet. And that makes me think that folks like Bannon are probably just flashes in the pan. The last time we went through this transition, it was the 1930s. We had the Great Depression. We had World War II. On the front end, African-Americans to a person were Republicans and all big business owners were Democrats. So to think that we understand what this is going to look like, I don't think is a very good read of our history. We make this up as we go, and we're loud about it. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting notion. One thing that triggers uh, rethinking everything is the uh, newfound respect Latino Americans have for, uh, for the Republican Party. It's Maybe that is an augury of the future. Well, it's great stuff, Peter. You're definitely thinking outside the box, differently from other people. The end of the world is just the beginning, mapping the collapse of globalization. Uh, touch on a number of really interesting issues. Congratulations on the book. It's already a bestseller. I think it's going to be one of those books that everybody talks about. I'll have to get you I'm back on the this. show to talk more. The, uh, the geostrategic version of, uh, of Rasputin, the American version of Colorado. Peter Zaihan, the author of... Uh, the end of the world is just the beginning. Congratulations on the book, as I said, Peter. Uh, are you reading anything else these days? Uh, in addition uh, to I, your you know, Honestly, uh, Oceans of Grain is actually on my list right now. Wow. I haven't gotten to it yet. Uh, Real wild, right? Yeah, exactly. It's we're, we're seeing the breakdown of global agriculture. So taking a step back so we can evaluate a step forward just seemed logical to me. Uh, I realize this is not a geopolitical book in the traditional sense, but if you haven't read World War Z by Max Brooks, uh, not the movie. The movie was trash. The book is the best geopolitical analysis I have seen of the human condition ever. It just has zombies in it, but the zombies are not the star of the show. We are. <laughs> 